Finding myself by chance in the shipyard, I came upon Lieutenant Frederick Rollet in the act of launching a boat manned by a dozen sailors, all well armed with sabers and pickaxes. And I hastened to ask him where he was going with that array. To make a capture, he replied, as he ordered his men to row in all haste in the direction of the vessel, which was slowly but steadily making her way up the river, all unconscious of the fate awaiting her. Thomas Verchers de Boucherville, Amnesburg. Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids, where today we dance a quick step to the side and expand on an idea glanced at in the previous episode entitled Lower Your Colors. There, if you recall, we spent the opening moments retracing the idea that the War of 1812 began here in the Old Northwest and we made mention of the British, native, and voyageur capture of Fort Mackinac, and the surrender of the transport ship Cuyahoga Packet, both coming in July of that fateful year. Then we made mention that these were, quote, well-known stories to us, unquote, and launched into our subject for the day. But it occurs to us, upon listening back now, that perhaps not all listeners of this story hour may be so fully aware of this little tale, this interesting side note, which, with explanation, can only enrich our full understanding of the great epic. So today shall be a brief supplement to the last episode as we explore the adventure of the Cuyahoga Packet, what this ship was, how did it come by the foot of the rapids and twist itself into our tale? And how two pistol shots to the air and then across her deck begin the War of 1812. Again, welcome to the foot of the rapids. The opening quote we heard from Thomas Verchers, a renowned Canadian viewpoint of this exchange. Verchers was born in French Quebec, moved out to Upper Canada and the Detroit River just prior to the war. From the King's Royal Navy dockyards in Amherstburg, two small longboats, the first containing Lieutenant Rollette, as we heard, with a squad of sailors and regulars, and a second rowboat with Verchers himself and a party of American Indians, accosted our subject vessel, the Cuyahoga Packet, as she entered the Detroit River on its eastern side, coming from the south and Lake Erie. The Cuyahoga Packet is a difficult watercraft to track, as early record-keeping that survives from the lake 
is scarce. She was built at the mouth of the Chagrin River in the first decade of the 19th century. Some sources say 1804, others 1805. The Chagrin River, a small and meandering water vein in far northeast Ohio, still boasts a boating community today. She was built by perhaps the first area settler and most prominent citizen, David Abbott, considered the founder of the modern town of Willoughby, Ohio. Not to be confused with the pleasant village of the afterlife from the Twilight Zone. David Abbott built a mill on the river in the last days of the 18th century. We learn from his daughter, a sawmill. Later moving west, Abbott would also serve as a sheriff in fledgling Cleveland, Ohio, before continuing west to the Huron River Valley in 1810, where two years later, his family became entangled in the great flight of American refugees abandoning their homes at the beginning of the war. A beginning his fateful ship would play a surprising role in. Running a sawmill would have given Abbott easy access to the enormous timbers required for the skeletal structure of a Lake Commerce boat. The Cuyahoga Packet was described by period memories as being between 15 and 20 tons. Modern naval historian Skaggs puts her at 30 tons. Tonnage is a rating by which the amount of cargo weight a vessel can safely carry is measured. It is difficult to ascertain a ship's exact dimensions from tonnage alone, but looking at other contemporary boats, we can closely guess. The Friends Goodwill a lake carrier of the time was rated at 50 tons and measured 57 feet. Also, the British-Canadian Chippewa, rated at 50 tons, measured 59 feet of deck. So, we could likely conclude the Cuyahoga Packet measured just over 50 feet in length, with a height of just under 7 feet in the hold. Also debated by writers from the time is the Packet's rigging, which is alternately referred to as a sloop and also a schooner, which is remarkable considering the difference. The slight majority of sources claim schooner, and that includes famed Great Lakes captain Daniel Dobbins, who largely held all operations on Lake Erie together during the war years. So we will vote schooner, a two-masted vessel. Dobbins also made note of a peculiar design for the packet, and that regarding the ship's keelson. The keelson is a separate and lengthy timber which is bolted down on top of the keel itself. In between the two are sandwiched the bases of the big ribs of the hull. For the packet, the keel and keelson were hewn from a single enormous timber with a series of slots hollowed out to insert and house the rib bases. This would have made the Cuyahoga packet extremely sturdy and stable, with great strength and little give in heavy seas. So, to review, built in northeast Ohio, 50 feet in length, two fore-and-aft rigged masts, 
a sizable hold and stiff in the swells. She would have also had a small square and squat cabin on deck, abaft of amidships. On the first day of July, the army marched for Detroit. And although a great quantity of baggage had been left at Fort Finley, yet the teams being worn out in want of forage and a great number of wagons greatly impeded the progress of the army. To remedy which, by General Hull's order, a great quantity of medical and quartermaster stores, officers' baggage, and all the sick of the army was left to be transported by water. So, on the same day that the army marched, a considerable part of the stores and baggage were put on board the packet of Cuyahoga, a small schooner of 15 or 20 ton burthen, Luther Chapin, captain and master. The crew consisted of Captain Chapin and three sailors, one of whom was sick. Such was the goodly and unprepared Junto. Deputy Quartermaster William K. Bell, Northwest Army. The Cuyahoga Packet was captained by owner-operator Luther Chapin of Buffalo, New York. Of his three sailors, we know two of them were brothers Elijah and Cyrus St. John, also of Buffalo. In the spring of the year, the brothers St. John had traveled to Albany, New York, to purchase a great store of goods from the well-known merchant Abel M. Grosvenor Sr. These items were bound for resale at a profit in Detroit and on the frontier. So for our time frame, the packet had just sailed from Buffalo to Detroit and was likely on its way back when it dipped into the Maumee River in late June to visit the growing community upriver. It would have already passed the British-held Fort Malden on both the upbound and downbound course, and this being peacetime with nothing coming from Malden but watchful eyes. General William Hull was leading an army up through Ohio to reinforce his command at Detroit, and in the event of war, invade Upper Canada across the Detroit River. They emerged from the darkness of the swamp to the sunny banks of the Maumee on June 29th, where they rested and cleaned up. They crossed at the foot of the rapids and had a formal review their first in weeks, and paraded through the small community at Maumee on July 1st. The army was ordered to encamp upon the Big Flat, a beautiful piece of ground on the river. It was really exciting to see nearly the whole army bathing at once. They certainly needed a washing after about four weeks marching through the mud tormented by mosquitoes and flies. The army remained in camp three days to wash and dress. 
and then was ordered to march to the big flat below Fort Miami, a distance of six miles. They crossed the river by fording and marched down on the north side through what is now Maumee City, at which point they were most becomingly saluted by Captain Bond, who commanded a company of 30 men. At Fort Miami, near which the army encamped, after that most splendid display in six miles of march over good roads, here there happened to be at that time a small schooner of about 20 tons. John Hunt, civilian. Fort Miami, a derelict British outpost from the 1790s, is likely where the Cuyahoga docked, tying up at their former facilities. Here, Hull received an urgent message from the War Department, warning that war was imminent, and he needed to proceed to the safety of Detroit with all and absolute haste. The army had been bogged down in the swamp by the heavy baggage load and tired horses. In the words of Lydia Bacon, an officer's wife of the 4th Infantry, quote, We have had dreadful roads today. Several horses gave out. Two dropped dead. One wagon left in the mud. Unquote. And we have already heard from Deputy Bell that a great number of stores had been left behind in Finley, and the army was much impeded by the great quantity of wagons. Hull would decide to quicken his pace by transporting the slower elements of the march, the sick men and the cargo, by ship. He handed over 50 bucks to Luther Chapin for the job. It is unclear if the packet had been sent from Detroit for this purpose, as Mrs. Bacon later suggests in her diary, or if Chapin's presence at the rapid was just Hull's lucky fortune. Either way, the road to northward would not drag on his tail. The packet was loaded nearly to capacity. Quartermaster stores, medical supplies, officers' personal baggage, General Hull's personal baggage, as well as, though accounts differ, about 40 passengers, these being the sick from the militia and the regulars, officers' wives, some children, surgeon's mate James Reynolds to look after the sick, and Deputy Q.M. Bell to take charge of the goods. Some sources even claim there were a handful of musicians to act as corpsmen. The hold was too full of baggage to admit more than five or six of the sick. The balance, women and all, crowded on deck. The cabin not more than large enough for the women to retreat to. No room to handle or manage the sails. The muskets and cartridge boxes, with what few damaged cartridges that were in them, were all stowed away under the baggage in the hold, and the sick and defenseless just exposed. There were so many people, in fact, a second, smaller open boat was also hired to transport the least sick. This boat was fitted with oars for propulsion, and therefore was not limited by the fickle Ohio winds, 
made better time and could hug the more shallow and safer American coastline. The Cuyahoga packet shoved off late in the afternoon that same day, July 1st, and proceeded downriver. About sunset, the wind died, and Captain Chapin anchored for the night, until about 4 a.m. the next day when the winds returned. They were delayed with an aggravating grounding as the river gave way to the lake. But as the full sun warmed the morning, they were well on their way again, now with a fresh breeze and cutting the gray waves of western Lake Erie. One cannot imagine 40 persons all aboard a 50-foot sailing craft. People would have to have been everywhere, cramped, the ride heavy, wet with spray, and slow. We know now from later British reports that the packet was leaking and taking on water, as the officer baggage and stores were wet when they were confiscated, soaked from within the hold itself. That same day, now July 2nd, Hull received an express rider, Charles Shaler from Cleveland, bearing news that war was officially open and he was to be on his guard. Hull dispatched emergency riders to try and catch the packet with news and warning before she could make the lake. They would be too late, though the messengers could likely see her sails on the horizon from anywhere on the shores of what is now southeastern Michigan. All in too good spirits to think we should be at Detroit by three o'clock in the afternoon. To our surprise, just as we were about to enter Detroit River, we saw a boat that hailed us and ordered the captain to lower his sails. Our arms were all in the hold and the men sick. I thought it improper to make any resistance as I had not been informed that war was declared and had not had orders from the general to make any resistance. The whole party, 45 in number, and not more than six well persons among them, it must have been imprudent in the highest degree to have attempted to resist a boat of eight well-armed men and a captain, and another of five men who demanded us as prisoners of war, and we were nearly under the cover of the guns at Fort Malden. So ever we gave ourselves up and was taken into Malden, and our property was all stored in the hold and hatches nailed immediately, and we were taken alongside a prison ship. James Reynolds, surgeon's mate. We embarked and enjoyed the sail very much after riding horseback nearly 600 miles and sleeping on the ground 50 nights. We were in high spirits anticipating the pleasure we should receive in resting a while, but we saw a large boat coming thence towards us with all possible speed, and when near enough to be heard, ordered our captain to lower his sails. He, not knowing why he should do this, had a mind to run from them, but a second thought convinced him that this would be endangering the vessel and the lives of those on board, as we were so near their fort that they could with ease blow us out of the water. 
Even while this was passing the captain's mind, those in the boat fired twice at us, and as the shot whistled above our heads, it caused a sensation not easily described. Mrs. Gooding flew into the cabin as soon as they heard the shot whistle. But a love of novelty, spiced with curiosity, overcame my fears, and I continued on deck for a while, for I had never come in contact with shot before. The sails was lowered, and the English captain with his men jumped on board, delighted with their prize. He took the helm, and in a short time we were anchored at Malden. Prisoners of His Majesty King George III. An honor I little thought would ever be my lot, but one I should have most cheerfully dispensed with. Lydia, Mrs. Josiah Bacon. Rolles boat reached the vessel's side a few minutes ahead of us, and the men boarded her without meeting any resistance. Either the crew was unaware that war had been declared, or they were uncertain of the relations between the two countries. The next instant I came up with my Indians, and to leap aboard required only a moment. My friend, Rollet, then ran up the British flag and ordered the American band to play God Save the King. This was the first prize of the war, and it was taken by a young French-Canadian, Thomas Verchier. We espied a boat which appeared to be crossing from the point of an island and which we supposed to be a canoe of Indians. The boat, on our nearer approach, proved to be a long boat with a naval officer and six sailors on board, who, having laid on their oars for a short time made for us, and Captain Chapin, supposing they wished to only be making friendly inquiries, did not alter his course. They were armed with cutlasses and heavy pistols belted round them, and raising their muskets, the officer ordered the mainsails to be lowered which, not being done, he fired a pistol in the air. Captain Chapin began to lower them, but expecting we could get around the island, I requested him to hoist them. He did so, but replied, impossible. We were too far advanced in the channel to get back, and a longboat with 60 infantry had put out below us to cut off our retreat. They were making for us. As we passed the longboat, Captain Rowlett, the naval officer, pointed a pistol at Lieutenant Gooding, who was standing near the helm and repeated the order, douse your mainsails. Lieutenant Gooding cried, I have no command here, sir. A shot was then fired directly at us, and I thought, like others did, that they aimed at me and the ball passed close to me. Captain Chapin inquired what he should do. Do as you please, replied Lieutenant Gooding, and the sails were lowered. The vessel floated till Captain Rowlett and his six men came alongside and entered her. I demanded of the officer his authority for boarding us, and he replied that an express had reached Fort Malden the night before, stating that war was declared. William Bell, 
Deputy Quartermaster. Captain Roulette's first shot was a warning fired into the air. His second, though also a gentlemanly warning, was close enough to the heads of the Americans they could alarmingly hear it whistle and hum. With this urgency and proximity, we can declare this the first shot of anger in the War of 1812. Captain Roulette would pilot the packet into the docks at Amherstburg, the Americans officially prisoners of war, and the War of 1812 now in full swing everywhere in the world. The prisoners were transferred to the provincial marine ship Thames, also at the docks there, and a slightly larger vessel for their confinement. The ladies ultimately were sent back to their husbands in Detroit. But the grand prize was the personal baggage of General William Hull. Therein, famously, was his official correspondence with the War Department and his order of battle. Overall British commander General Isaac Brock now had the means by which he could surround, submit, and extinguish the Americans in his capture of Detroit six weeks later. Turning back to the Cuyahoga packet, her civilian captain and crew endured a three-month confinement. They were released in the fall of that year on the Niagara frontier and simply walked back to Buffalo with absolutely nothing but the clothes on their backs. Sailor Elijah St. John even had his simple pocket knife confiscated. Little or perhaps nothing is known of the Cuyahoga packet after her surrender. The records seemingly fall away. If anyone knows, please write into the show. To add a twist of mystery and speculation to her ultimate fate, there is a 20-ton vessel that shows up in the ranks of the Northwest Company in 1814, the NWC ship Mink. The British Navy and Provincial Marine may have owed the Northwest Company for use of their ships in the middle year of the war. Also a little later, in 1815, a 20-ton vessel the Salem Packet shows up as a commerce runner on the upper Great Lakes, perhaps worth an eyebrow raise. We do know that Captain Luther Chapin petitioned the War Department for compensation in the loss of his vessel, seeking $2,000 as a price tag to his livelihood. This was a process that would take him 11 years after 11 lengthy years of bureaucratic red tape, letters, judgments, and appeals, Luther Chapin's plea for compensation would be denied. It likely ruined the man. And just as the Cuyahoga packet sailed away from the foot of the rapids on an afternoon with slacking breeze, we also say, fair winds.